Welcome to Wild Hearts at Work, a podcast redefining our relationship with work through stories and conversations with Wild Hearts who have dared to challenge the status quo. And now, here's your host, Melissa Boggs. Hello and welcome back to the Wild Hearts at Work podcast. I am your host, Melissa Boggs. And as every episode, I'm super excited about this guest, but this one does have a super special place in my heart. This week, I get to introduce you to the founder and CEO and chief storyteller of Menlo Innovations. He's the author of Joy Inc. and of Chief Joy Officer. He is a sought after speaker and my friend, Rich Sheridan. Rich, welcome to the show. Great to be with you, Melissa. It's always so much fun. Um, I'm not even going to like be formal or pretend like you know we're going to have this like Q and A session because we're probably going to go in four different directions, and uh, that's okay. Um, but yeah, it's been a crazy 18 months, Rich. Uh, talk to me just a little bit about how things have been for you and for Menlo, and how it sort of shaped things for you. Well, as you know, we celebrated our 20th birthday this past Woo-hoo! Yeah. And uh, and there's something, you know, as a, as a founder of a company, and especially one that has really, I feel like we've really maintained our entrepreneurial roots throughout our history. It still feels like a startup. So there's part of me that my brain just can't reconcile 20 years because um, it went by like that. Uh, but... The 20th year, you know, from the 19th birthday to the 20th birthday was a time unlike I've ever experienced in our history. And I almost feel like everything we did in the first 19 years prepared us for year 20. Mm. And, uh, we had to lean on everything uh, to make it through just to survive, first of all, and then to adapt and then to sustain and get stronger and, and thrive again, which is where we are now, which I'm delighted to be able to say the, that future was nowhere near certain during this, during that 20th year. Sure. Um, before we go too much further for our listeners who maybe haven't heard of Menlo, although I can't imagine how that's true. Um, can you just briefly describe what Menlo does so that they can understand maybe why it was hard in the pandemic? Well, those who know us well, maybe like you have, Melissa, have come and visited us. We get between three and 4,000 visitors a year who come just to see the space that's over my shoulders right now. And what they would see is this big open room, not that unusual in, in the you know modern workplace to be a, an open office environment, sometimes controversial, as you well know. But the human energy in our space is so palpable because we're working in pairs Everybody pairs, not just our programmers. We switch the pairs every five days. So there's these active conversations. I can hear some of them right now, even though right now most of us are still remote. And and these visitors would come. They'd come on tours. they take classes from us. And the whole time what they're doing is they're coming to see us and our team operate. They want to watch us design and build custom software for our clients. That's what we do for a living. I mean, could it really be that interesting that three or 4,000 people a year would come just to see how we do what we do? But what they're really looking for is a key to creating an intentionally joyful culture. 
and they walk away with ideas. They walk away with some inspiration. That's how Menlo has been, as I now call it, traditional Menlo for 19 years. And then, of course, in March of 2020, just like everybody else in the world, we had to go home. We had to bug out. We had to grab as much equipment as we could. Um, you know, if they forgot something, we would bring it to them. And we became this 100% remote company, which we'd never been in our history. We had pieces and parts of Menlo that would have operated like that, never at the scale of the whole company. And the visitors stopped, of course, and the classes stopped and all the ways we would typically interact with customers. We have this specialized practice at Menlo that we call high-tech anthropology. That is our design thinking team. Well, the word anthropology implies something very important about their practice. Go out and study people in their native environment. Well, how are they going to do that? They can't travel. Even if they could, there's nobody in their native environment. So we had to figure out, we had to refigure everything about how Menlo works, while at the same time dealing with the economic hardship that came for many companies like ours uh, in the earliest part of the pandemic. I remember talking to you in those early days, probably in like April or May. And, you know, there was definitely a, a heaviness to you. Um, and something that occurred to me while you were just talking is like, it's, it's the economic impact, but actually that energy of the humans coming into your space, you know, probably brought a different energy to your folks and to your team and to you. And so now you're all isolated. You're worried about, you know, the economic impact of this because custom software means clients. Clients are also struggling economically at this point. Um, so at what point was there a shift? Cause I know, I know there was, I have like the, the spoiler alert. There was, when there was, was the shift and how? You know, um, so we, there, there were a couple of key inflection points during the pandemic times, which of course we are still in, you know, I'd like to say we're done with it. And we all thought maybe we would be by now, but, but we're <sighs> not, um, the first one was June of 2020, early June 2020. I was talking to a friend, uh, Skip Stewart at Baptist Memorial Health. And Skip's been a good friend for a long time. He knows us well. He's heard me speak. He's read the books. And he and I have just, like you and I, have become close friends and kind of, uh, you know, just able to chat with each other. And he called me up. He's like, Rich, how are you doing? It's like, oh, my gosh, this must have been traumatic for you guys. What What's going on at Menlo? Because he knew a shift this had to have been for us and uh and he was trying to figure out how did you how did you like transform you know in such a short period of time to remote from this wildly in-person place and i asked him a question that was innocent at first but became life-changing later i said would you like to see it skip he says what do you mean i said well how about if we set up a virtual tour of the virtual memo he said, you can do that? I said, I have no idea, but let's try it. Let's run the experiment. And so we did the next week. In early June, Skip and his team from Baptist Memorial Health down in Tennessee came and visited Menlo. They didn't have to leave their homes. We didn't have to leave ours. They came and visited the virtual Menlo. They talked with team members. They saw how we'd adjusted our processes to a remote-only environment. And A, they were blown away. And B, we were kind of shocked at how well it went. And so Skip put out this neat little message on LinkedIn, just telling his friends, hey, we just did this virtual tour. It was amazing. The team has adapted. It was great to see. Thank you, Rich Sheridan and the Menlonians for doing this. 
And all I did in a reply to Skip, thanking him for the kind words, was if any of your friends, Skip, want to come visit, just write us at experience at menlomotivations.com. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it was like a fire hose. In fact, our team was so starved for this energy of people coming to visit us. I know those first few weeks we were scheduling 11 or 12 virtual tours per week. Holy moly. Day. And they just kept coming. And eventually we settled it into a pattern of about three a week now. But Melissa, since June of 2020, we've had over 2,000 visitors come virtually from around the world, representing 63 countries and 39 states. And I think in that little story is, it's a microcosm of, I think, everything any of us have been through for the last year. And that is, there are grand new opportunities that we would have never anticipated before, even if we had. If somebody had suggested, hey, Rich, you know, in addition to all these, you know, in-person tours, you should do virtual tours. And I'm sure I would have said, well, why? The way we're doing things now seems to work just fine. What, what benefit would there be doing virtual tours? I don't know. How about all those people who read your books around the world and, and they want to come visit, but they can't afford the flight in the hotel room, you know? And so now, you know, we've really democratized the tours. And, and here's the other beautiful thing. I think, again, this is the big lesson for us and for others. Why on earth would we ever stop doing virtual tours, even if the real tours start up again? Absolutely. This is a new strength, a new offering, a new capability we've built in, inside of this. Yeah. You said democratize, but also the word that came to me was it was equalizing. Mm-hmm. It was equalizing for, you know, we experienced the same thing when I was at Scrum Alliance, where when we allowed virtual courses, which had never happened before, we reached people in underserved areas that never would have been able to to make a trip or, you know, go stay in a hotel, everything that you said. So it does feel like this last 18 months has been an equalizer in, in many ways. Now there's still, you know, there's still a lot of privilege in the world. There's still ways in which things are not equalized, but in this particular niche of, you know, getting virtual things out there that reach people that they normally wouldn't, um, it's been kind of incredible. There's something else that you said that I wrote down. It was innocent at first and life-changing later, like a simple comment. And I know there's something about that that resonates with me that like, you can just like say something, you know, throw out an idea. And sometimes those just, you just throw it out and that's the end of it. But sometimes it's, it's the turning point of something. Um, And that's so crazy. So shout out to, was it Simon? What did you say his name was? Sorry. Oh, Skip. 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 Yep. Shout out to Skip for that innocent comment that was uh, life-changing later. Absolutely. And, you know, what was neat about it, too, was the virtual tour itself, the first time we did it, was quickly thrown together. We did a great job. And, you know, clearly Skip's team was enthused by what they saw. And we've continued to improve that process since then. Um, But we didn't overly plan it either. We just said, let's try it. Let's let's go let's go experiment. You know, it's kind of a famous work word here at Menlo. And what it did, far beyond that initial positive and you know, and the uptake type of experience was it emboldened our team to try similar things that were harder 
and would take longer. So we started virtualizing all of our classes. And again, there are some of our classes that are just so good when they're delivered in person. I think if you would have pressed me two years ago and said, Rich, I think you should take your most popular classes and make them virtual so people can attend from anywhere. I'd say, Melissa, why? I mean, it's such a powerful in-person experience, and I don't think it'll work. And we had to make it work. But that first experience, when it worked, that first virtual tour, all of a sudden the teams just started racing towards the goal of virtualizing all of our classes. What I love about that is that when when you are an innovator, when you are a radical corporate person and you do things in a different way, once you've done them, they start to become part of the fabric. So where this hits me with Menlo is like, there are things that, that you all do that people have read the books, everyone comes to see you. But on the other hand, like that's Menlo. That's how they do things now, you know, and like it sort of becomes taken for granted, even though what you are doing is still radically different than most other custom software companies, right? And what this just shows is that there's always another step that you can take. There's always another experiment that you can run that just extends your creativity, extends, you know, your ability to innovate. But sometimes we have to be forced into it. You know, we don't think that about ourselves. We think we're always, you know, creative and radical and rebellious, but sometimes even the most radical and rebellious have to be kind of nudged to take another step and to not just take their innovation for granted. And, and let me, uh, let me be completely transparent, humble and vulnerable in this moment. Um, you and maybe some of the readers of my books or your listeners might be hearing and saying, what a cool guy. He's, he's got it on the ball. You know, he can, you know, he's, they're so lucky to have him leading them through these tough times. Oh no. <laughs> I fell down early on. I was laying on the floor, probably curled up in a little, you know, ball and, and they kept moving. They kept moving forward. They didn't wait for me. And I wish I could tell you, M Melissa, that I had uh, woken up the first day of the pandemic with this bright bulb over my head saying, I know the way forward. Heck no, I was panicking. I didn't know how are we going to adjust this thing I've written books about, spoken around the world about, hosted 20,000 plus people over the last 10 years to come in and see us. And now all of a sudden, it's all gone. All of our visitors aren't coming anymore. Our high-tech anthropology practice can't possibly work anymore. How will we find new customers? And I'm like, I think this is it. I think we're done. <laughs> and that was my first thought. And I, you know, and I took a little bit of solace saying, hey, you did what you set out to do. It was 19 years. It was a good run. Don't feel bad about it. You didn't do this. And the team just marched right past me. And they just kept going. And I eventually caught up to them. And uh, but I had to run fast to keep up with this team. And I will tell you, as I uh, said, uh, you know, to you in the past, I think we've been preparing our entire 19 years, that first 19 years for this last year. Absolutely. Done, uh, prepared us for this moment. So I appreciate your humility. However, I am going to say that while that may have been true in the moment, there is a certain amount of um, culture and infrastructure that has to be in place in order for employees to feel like they could keep marching when you were not. Um, 
in another episode, um, I talk with a sociologist and she talks about that infrastructure that is necessary to really um, ignite that entrepreneurial spirit that we all actually have inside of us. Like she talks about back in, you know, caveman times, we had to be entrepreneurial. So we still have that. However, you know, our current structures sort of stamp that out of us and like say, you know, stay in your lane. So it takes a very special organization and intentionality that I know that you have around nurturing that. And it sort of paid you back in a sense, like when you were at your lowest, that intentionality that you had spent for 19 years and everyone around you, I mean, credit to them as well, but without a leader's intentionality of creating that structure, you don't have people who even know how to tap into that. And so you have to take a little bit of credit uh, for making that possible. And then yes, huge credit to them for, you know, marching right past you. I'm sure some of them like patted you on the way and said like, it's going to be okay. We're going to keep going. Come with me. Yeah. Follow us. <laughs> you know, and, and I will tell you that when I think back in my life history, there was a serious personal inflection point back in 1997 when I was a VP, took my young daughter to work with me. And um, she was eight. It was a take your child to work day moment. And, um, and she watched her dad work, the newly minted VP of R&D at Interface Systems. I mean, can you imagine a more boring day for an eight-year-old than watching <laughs> do their work all day, right? Oh, my dad does email all day. I can't wait to get into the work world. Um, so I asked her at the end of the day, I said, Sarah, what do you think? What do you see? What are you going to tell your teacher tomorrow? And what she said changed me. She said, Dad, what I saw is you're really important here. I said, what? She said, what I saw is nobody here can make a decision without asking you first. Oh, man. Talk about being convicted by a proud little girl who was so, so proud of her dad that he was so smart that he was the number one hero. And I realized in that moment, and far different than what we're doing here, I'm not central. Nobody comes to me asking questions, saying, what should we do next? That's the way it was in the old days. I was the number one hero. The only way to scale hero-based organizations is to scale the hero. The only way to do that is overtime. And I'm looking across the table at this eight-year-old thinking, I don't want to miss the best parts of being a dad. So I had to make a really big change to really let go. And, you know, and I, a lot of that, the reason I could curl up in a ball on the floor and they'd all march past me was because they didn't need me. They weren't coming to me asking for permission and saying, hey, Rich, we're thinking of doing this. What do you think? They just went. They knew. They, you know, I think there's two things that keep Menlo going. And certainly this was true over the last year. Number one, the team believes in what we do and how we do it. That belief is powerful. Doesn't require me to restoke it every single day. It doesn't require rah-rah speeches or, you know, me standing on a soapbox in the middle of the room reading out of pages of Joy Inc. every day to keep them. <laughs> um, and uh, and number two, they don't want this thing to die. They want it to live to see another day. And you know, those are two very powerful forces. And so their willingness and ability to adapt 
uh, was, you know, was just a paramount importance because, you know, I mean, look, you know, there's, as you've talked about, there's this grand reckoning going on, which includes the grand resignation right? where people are like, okay, this is my moment. I'm out of here. Right. And people here don't want to leave because they don't want to go back to the real world. They don't want to be part of the dog eat dog world of standard corporations, no matter where they are. Yeah. Um, I just have to say, cause I definitely want to get into the great reckoning next. Um, but it sounds like another instance of innocent at first life changing later that you have your daughter to thank for yes. in this particular instance. Right. And, and her intention was to praise me. Right. Right. I'm like, no, this is the last thing on earth I want. Right. And, you know, and I know how I became a hero. I'm sure I was in meetings where I was, you know, speaking first and drowning out the conversations of others and making sure everybody saw my limelight rather than anybody else's. And that's how you got promoted in corporate land. And I, you know, and the trouble was, as much as I was being honored and, and rewarded for those behaviors, I wasn't producing the results I wanted in my life. I wasn't producing the kind of quality software we do now at Menlo where I'm not in the middle at all anymore. Um, you know, this is this is a part of leadership growth where learning to let go and letting your team lead is is fundamentally important. Yeah, it's that adage about, you know, leaders grow leaders, but then the reward system in many companies doesn't actually reward leaders for growing leaders, right? Oh. It rewards you for centering yourself and shining the light on yourself and... Yeah. So I get the big title, the big office, the, the the grand span of authority and the big paycheck and the number of stock options. It's, you know, it's a, uh, uh, I win because you lose kind of environment. A zero sum environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so let's bridge the last 18 months into now. Um, so in a previous episode of the podcast, I talked about the great reckoning and if you listeners heard that episode, I referenced a friend that I had been talking to about this. Rich is that friend. So this great reckoning is, I think what you had said that struck me was the revolution already happened, you know, and, and I think I sort of added, and now we're reckoning with it, right? Now we're being forced to, to recognize the revolution. So in what ways do you see that revolution? What was the revolution that happened in the last year? So I thought this during this whole time, you know, I, I think if I'm sure you like me and probably everybody else on planet earth, uh, if you know, on that week of March 16th, right. Of 2020, when we were all bugging out, when our governors were giving orders to no in-person work and all that sort of thing, we're all trying to figure out what the heck are we going to do? I know in my head, I thought that's okay. We can do anything for eight weeks. We'll just tough it out for eight weeks, and then we'll be back in the office, right? That's going to be it. Eight weeks. How could this possibly last longer than eight weeks? It's probably not as real as people think it is anyways, right? And, of course, it didn't. And, heck, we don't even know if this is going to be done eight weeks from today. Right? <laughs> you know, and it may not be the way the numbers are going. So as I watched this unfold, I began to have this personal belief that you cannot – 
so radically alter human behavior over such a long period of time and not have it have, have lasting permanent effects on people's psychology, uh, people's thought processes and work processes and practices and beliefs about how work can be done. And I think we're seeing that now. What, in my mind, the, the interesting part of this revolution was a lot of times revolutions are one force against another, right? And the, and the front lines are clear and you can just watch the conflicts and you can cheer for one side or the other. You can read the newspaper articles about who's winning the wars, who won the battle today. But this was a different kind of revolution because it included everyone. And the reason it was a silent revolution, uh, an invisible revolution, was because we, we had much bigger fish to fry. We were trying to keep our teams healthy and safe and free from COVID if we could. And we were trying to figure out vaccines and we were trying to figure out all the social justice implications. We were dealing with tremendous political turmoil. All this stuff was going on. Well, every day, our work lives changed like that and stayed changed for 18 months. And now, the time we're in right now, Menlo's going through it, and I'm sure every other organization is going through their version of it. We said, hey, maybe we should try and come back. Let's, you know, we still have this office. <laughs> still have your chair here. Still have your table. You know, why don't you come back into the office? And people started saying, why? Why should I? What's the benefit? And, you know, we're, we're hearing that here at Menlo. I mean, we are the... We are the collective effervescence team who loves to be together and share that human energy and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, at first, I'm sure in my head, I'm thinking, I, I guess, uh, be careful here. I knew this was going to be difficult. I just knew it. I, I knew the coming back was going to be harder than the going in because A, it's not being forced. And B, it's not going to occur universally the same everywhere, which was exactly the opposite of what happened that week of March 16th. And so now we're all reckoning with what should the future look like? We're about a year away from our lease ending on the space I'm sitting in right now. You know, it could, I could turn this dial from anywhere from should we even have an office to should it be smaller than the one we currently have? Should it be the same size? Should it be bigger? And how do I feel about that? How do they feel about that? Because I can tell you, you know, while there are there are Menlonians who've made it very clear they really like the remote work environment, there are remote Menlonians on the exact opposite side that say they hate it. And so there's been a fundamental shift. We need to recognize it. We need to embrace it, even if we don't even know exactly what it is yet. <laughs> and I think much like Patrick Lencioni said in the first days of the pandemic at his Emerge Stronger conference, he said, you know, there are being companies during this pandemic time that will die. Try not to be one of them. Then there will be <laughs> companies that live. And he says, but the biggest fork in the road for the companies that survive the pandemic is, and this is a leadership choice. This is the hard part. Did you choose to emerge stronger or did you choose to emerge weaker? He says the companies that are going to race ahead when the economy opens it up, opens up like it is now, are the ones that specifically chose to emerge stronger during the pandemic. 
And I see that here. We've absolutely emerged stronger and we are just racing ahead now as fast as we possibly can. But I think we're facing similar forks in the road ahead based on this changed attitude about where should work occur? How should it occur? How much in-person stuff do we need versus how much can be remote first, remote only, and whatever words we want to put on it? And I don't have answers yet. What I do have, I'll tell you delightfully, I have a much more open mind today than I did 18 months ago. I'm not curled up in a ball about this one. (laughs) I'm actually excited about it. This is fun again. I feel like an entrepreneur, like beginning stage entrepreneur again. Yeah, I think when we spoke previously, I don't know why this is the second time in my short run of a podcast that I am quoting the same line from a Green Day song, but um, they have a line that says, every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. Mm. And I think part of it for some people is allowing yourself to grieve what was And I've seen you do that, like in our conversations. I think, you know, there's an amount of grieving that you're allowing yourself to do. The grieving doesn't take away from the new. You know, it doesn't mean that the new is not also incredible and exciting. But we have to let go a little bit of of the before times. We talk about the before times all the time, right? And we're going to look back, you know, our grandkids or our great grandkids are going to look back at this time. and they're not going to necessarily look at the before times. Like all of this is going to be normal for them, whatever this is, whatever this turns into. But we are the ones who are in this moment. And I wouldn't even go to kids. I mean, you know, as young as our young kids, right? I'm seeing this with, I'll call it our our 22-year-old-ish Memlonians. I I had a talk with one of our team members uh, a couple of weeks ago, just basically asking, I mean, fresh college grad right out of Michigan, right here in Ann Arbor, he went to University of Michigan. Um, and we were kind of, James and I were probing around the team, having one-on-one conversations, just asking him, how do you feel about coming into the office, right? How do you feel about coming into Menlo? Well, it turned out when we talked to Andy, is his name, Andy lives about an hour and a half from here. He actually lives near my old hometown. What happened was after he graduated from Michigan, the pandemic hit, he moved back in with his parents. And I bet a lot of people did that, especially at that age, right? And uh, and he started working for Menlo. And no, no big deal. Parents has strong enough internet connection. He comes into work remotely every day. That's a-okay. And, of course, I can't, I, you know, I, I, it would be silly of me to say, hey, Andy, do you, would you mind driving three hours a day to come in here <laughs> Menlo? Right? I mean, it's not even a question I would think to ask because I know the answer to it. So I asked a different question. I said, Andy, are you thinking you'd ever move to Ann Arbor again? He goes, oh, absolutely. I love Ann Arbor. He says, in fact, I just got engaged. My fiance and I want to save up enough for a down payment on our house. Of course, let me tell you, that'll take 20 years for Ann Arbor. um, (laughs) But but anyhow, um, and so his thought was, I'm going to stay living with my parents because I can save a lot more money doing this. Okay, that makes sense. And he says, oh, by the way, I didn't tell you, I'm going to grad school in the fall. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, Michigan, uh, master's degree in data science. Now my brain's like, what? I mean, you said you're not coming to Ann Arbor. He goes, oh, no, it'll be an online course. It's only three credits a semester. So I'll be able to do it all after hours. 
And he says, oh, my fiance, she's going to grad school, too, at the University of Pennsylvania. But it's online for her, too, so she doesn't have to move there either. And I will tell you, Melissa, in that short conversation, I felt like I'd just seen the future. And it wasn't like the future three years from now. This is the future next month. Mm -hmm. And you cannot hear a story like that and the other stories that we're getting along the way and not have your brain chemistry change to say, I would be stupid not to acknowledge what I'm hearing from the people we value being a part of our team. It's yeah, it's unbelievable because I think it has opened up the world for a lot of people from what we talked about earlier, that like your virtual courses can reach people, virtual tours can reach people you can never reach before to these people being able to reach, you know, reach out and do things that they couldn't do before. But even things like, you know, schedules and dress codes, like all of these things that we held so dear, you know, you are in the office from 8.30 to 5.30 and you wear business casual and heels. Now, I know you guys probably weren't necessarily quite that far, but... Our our dress code is please dress. Yes. (laughs) But I will say... I upgraded from pandemic to coming back to Menlo. I went from shorts to blue jeans. Coming back <laughs> My listeners already know I am definitely wearing joggers right now. Which I believe they're comfortable, right? Right. <laughs> which frankly, like they're a step above sweatpants, in my opinion. <laughs> I was convinced, and I, I still might do this, uh, although I chickened out the first time. Uh, I had, I, you know, I do a lot of speaking. I do keynotes all over the world. And of course, you got a certain dress code for those. But pandemic speaking, all the virtual keynotes I did, I had a Zoom shirt on and shorts and slippers. And of course, they only see the Zoom shirt. And I thought, you know what? The first time I go out on stage, I'm walking out with my Zoom shirt, my shorts, and my slippers. I just, <laughs> I love I'm, it. And I'm going to hold a frame up over me, like, oh my God, you can see the rest of me now. <laughs> you know? I'm just saying that it was my MO when I give talks to wear a dress, but also wear my Converse. And that is not changing. <laughs> I like, it. I like <laughs> There's a spark to that, you know, there's yeah. a little bit of authenticity to that. Yeah. Um, so you've sort of alluded to it, but, but specifically, what are you excited about now? Like what you've learned, what we've been through, what do you see for yourself? Like not even just for Menlo, but for you, what are you what are you excited about? Well, number one, if if we go back past my when I finally uncurled myself from a ball on the floor and woke up and saw the team racing ahead and seeing everything working and getting back to thriving again, um, I re-entered a world that I had resisted for a few months early on in the pandemic. I became an entrepreneur again. Suddenly everything was new. Everything had to be figured out. Once you run a business for 19 years like we have, and it's so stable and understandable and everything like that, it was like, does my brain actually want to change? Do I want to re-embrace? Do I want to start over again? And I know at first I was like, no, I want to do that. I'm 63 years old. I could be done, right? And then I got caught up in the excitement. I started seeing everything a fresh, a new, uh, I was excited about what we were working on, what new ideas we have, what books I should be reading to give me even more new ideas. And that's what I'm excited about now is, and now is I feel like I'm 
finally at this really comfortable place of, of saying, I have no idea what's coming. And that's okay. That's actually exciting. In fact, and I think, you know, this is a place we have achieved that we can actually be part of this conversation is I think we can, we Menlo can help define the future. People will come to us and see, what did you do? They're already doing that. They've done it for 20 years. Now they're all coming back saying, how did you guys adjust? How are you making this work? We have people from major corporations calling us, this tiny little software firm in Ann Arbor, and asking us, how are you dealing with all this stuff? How are you dealing with the great reckoning? How are you dealing with people who want to live far away and, you know, that they don't want to stay where they are? And they're hanging on every word. Even if we don't have the answers yet, they're just like, we're going to stay in touch with you because we know if anybody can figure it out, Menlo can. And that's an exciting place to be. And I'm excited about that. It is. I was about to say, it wouldn't be the first time that people were looking at Menlo for what do you do? I'm curious for for our listeners out there who don't work at at Menlo, I work at other places. Are you hearing a similar mindset from your CEO friends? Are there other people who are also realizing that we're at this inflection point? Maybe it's the people who call us. So, you know, I'm not doing broad surveys or anything like that, but they're in pain. (laughs) They don't know what to do. They're like, it all used to work this way. And, you know, and what they're seeing is we have, we have separated, we've pulled apart things that were always, um, you know, welded together, right? Location and, and office, where I live and where I work, those were always welded together. You know, and I know that wasn't universally true, but for most people it was. And now those things have been pulled apart and they're independent from one another. And so, and, and they're, I mean, their systems, you know, these are larger corporations that are talking to us. They're having trouble adjusting because they're not, you know, they're not yet ready to let go of the old world. And I know that feeling. I, it's the way I had at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and so this, this is going to be hard for them. This is going to be a hard uh, thing to adjust to. And, you know, quite frankly, uh, because most of them, as we like to say, have built their teams on towers of knowledge. When they lose those people, they are losing a tremendous amount of work experience, work wisdom, work knowledge. And it's going to be really difficult for them to replace it. And, you know, I mean, you're, you're listing some of the what you would think are the most ideal workplaces on the planet struggling with this, right? When Tim Cook from Apple says, Hey, we're going to, we're going to tell you, you're all coming back in the office at least three days a week. And the first thing that happens is these 2000 employees sign a petition to send to Tim saying, now we are, we're going to quit Apple computer. Like, really? Isn't that like one of the best places to work on the planet? I mean, that beautiful, you know, donut of a building they have out in Cupertino I like, oh my gosh. I mean, if Apple can't hang on to their people, what chance does the, you know, does the the, the little manufacturer in the middle of Indiana have? Uh, if people can say, you know what, I'm not going to work for you anymore. Well, you're going to have to pick up your stakes and move. No, I'm not. <laughs> and so, you know, and of course, the beautiful thing is every one of these coins has a flip side to it. That means we can recruit from anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what I'm taking away from this, and I want to highlight for the listeners, is that you probably have some like really exciting ideas. You want to keep working remotely. It is 
you know, you want to keep wearing your jogger pants and, you know, maybe even working a flexible schedule. And just know that when you're bringing some of those ideas to these leaders, that they're in a they're in a struggle right now. They're in an internal battle. We talked about grieving. There's probably a, you know a certain amount of grieving that is happening still for the way that it used to be. So if you can think of ways in which what you're proposing can help solve their problems, then you might be more effective in in articulating those ideas or those those needs and wants that you have. Um, it's been a wild 18 months for everyone, including the CEOs of the world. And I won't say especially, but in their own way, the CEOs of the world. And so, you know, I think what the Menlonians did very effectively was showed Rich that some of these new ideas that they had were filling that gap. You know, we're helping the grieving be shorter because now there's a new way of looking at it. And so, you know, if you have that ability in whatever your idea is, or, you know, again, if it's simply just about, I want to continue working remotely because I can finish college or do my master's program and that's better for you. I'm going to be more equipped, you know, to be a great employee, whatever it might be. There's, there's a gap that we can close there when we have empathy all around for the impact that this last 18 months has had. And again, we're, we're still in it with, you know, things cropping up every day that tell us that maybe we're not at the end yet. Um, so yeah. Um, so Rich, we're getting toward the end of our time, but I do want to first thank you for the many conversations over the past 18 months and even before that. Um, but also for being here and, and sharing this, cause I know that this has been a challenging and rewarding journey for you simultaneously. <laughs> um, is there anything that you would like to share with our listeners about what Menlo has going on? Well, the the good news is uh, for anybody who's curious about us, you can come visit and it's free now, right? I mean, really free. Like just click on a link and you're here no matter where you are in the world. And I'm guessing, Melissa, you have a worldwide audience. Uh, I made a lot of radical changes 22-ish years ago in my professional life. I was one of those wild at heart corporate guys. And the reason I made the changes I did was because my heart was actually at risk. I couldn't keep going the way I had been. And I made big changes. They were the right things for me. And I've achieved a joy in my life that I had dreamt about then. And I've had it for the last 22 years. And so that, that change is possible for all of your listeners whichever direction you happen to go. Um, all I can say is I didn't have a Menlo to go look at when I was, you know, when I was trying this, it was all brand new. And and I'm not saying we have discovered the one true way of working because we haven't. That's not my point ever. Uh, but rather there are living, breathing examples like Menlo who open their doors. There's not a lot of us, but there are companies that open their doors and say, come in, take a look at us and grab any ideas you want. We're, we're open source when it comes to the ideas of working. And we will continue to, you know, think about what are the things we've discovered over the last 20 years, plus so much more just in the last year, that we could start to share with the world. We've had some great conversations about this just in the last few days here, about things that we know work and that others will be curious about. So stay tuned, watch the things we talk about, the 
classes we post, all that kind of stuff. Incredible. Uh, as we wrap up, I just also want to tell our listeners, um, find yourself a rich. And the reason that I say that is not to blow smoke at rich, but I have always been one of these wild hearts. That's why I have the podcast. I've always wanted to do things in a crazy way. And every time that I would get off the phone with Rich, I would feel better about that because he too was similar. And I always walked away feeling like, okay, I have to continue to stay true to this. Like who I am is okay. Even in the corporate world, who I am is okay. I have something of value to offer. And so find yourself a rich, find yourself someone in your org or in a different org that, you know, maybe has a similar job to you or maybe not, but they have similar feelings of this, you know, restlessness with the way that things have always been so that you can lift each other up. You can keep each other going and remind yourselves to stay true to that because that's what you have to offer. So with that, I will wrap up this episode. Thank you again, Rich. It is always a joy, pun intended. Yes, I've been waiting to drop that pun. Um, and to all my listeners, thank you for joining us on another episode of Wild Hearts at Work. Please stay tuned. There's much more to come. Like, share, subscribe, all the things. Um, but thank you for spending time with us today. And until next time, dear hearts, stay wild. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Wild Hearts at Work. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share. For more resources and to connect with Melissa, visit melissaboggs.com. Also, if you or someone you know is doing great work in a wild way, get in touch about being a guest on the show. Until next time.